All right, good morning, Garden City Church. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Raise your hand if you are excited to gather freely today. Anybody excited for that? And to live in a place where we can do this. So thankful for those uh, throughout the many years who have paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we can do this and, uh, and many other things. So happy Memorial Day weekend. Uh, as you guys know, we are in a series uh, on family, talking about marriage and kids and all of uh, those kinds of things. And this morning, uh, we're going to hear a, uh, a family story, a family story of celebration from Ryan and Janie. So can you guys put together a uh, Garden City welcome for Ryan and Janie? thought this would be a fun way to uh, kick off uh, week number two. So Ryan and Jenny, thanks for coming. Story time with friends. Thanks for leading us. Good morning. Awesome. As Brian said, I'm Ryan. This is my wife, Janie. And we're uh, blessed to share with you guys today a a short part of our testimony of uh, faith and how we were able to trust in God through some hard days. So excited to share that uh, we'll be celebrating five years of marriage this coming Friday. Very excited for that. And really, ever since we uh, have been together and, and, and got into marriage, you know, we wanted to have children and start a big family together. <coughs> so after one year of marriage, uh, we decided to start trying to have a baby. Uh, and one year after that, uh, we, we had no success. So we decided to seek help from multiple doctors and various treatment methods and eventually ended up at a fertility doctor. (coughs) And it was there when they confirmed that, uh, yeah, we had fertility issues in our bodies, making it difficult to conceive naturally. Uh, So we began monthly fertility treatments. And, (coughs) sorry, after several long months, uh, we still had no success. Uh, So we really felt down in this time, defeated each month, Um, And at this point, we told some family and friends about it, but we were really walking through this mostly just alone by ourselves. So it was really at this point um, in our journey is when I felt God really call us um, to bring more people into this uh, situation and to pray and have faith with us on our behalf. Um, Yeah, so I reached out to several men in my life who I looked up to in their faith and who have encouraged me in my faith at some point in my life. Um, so we invited them in to begin to pray with us and join us uh, in this journey. Yeah. yeah, so soon we had an entire community of family and friends that were praying for us and reaching out to us and checking in. Um, and for the first time in our whole infertility journey, we felt surrounded instead of isolated. Um, we felt more hopeful and at peace. Um, ultimately, through this time, we grew to know that God had the best plan for our family and that he was all we truly needed. Um, at our following appointment, after Ryan had reached out to this group of men, our doctor kind of sat us down and was like, um, the process that you're doing now, like if it hasn't worked already, like it's probably not going to. Um, and so, sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, 
So, yeah, she was encouraging us to move to a different procedure that was more difficult, uh, way more expensive, but provided a higher chance of pregnancy. Um, and basically, she was kind of trying to, like, save us money and time in the long run. Um, but we turned her down, and because we had faith that God wasn't finished... So it was awesome. Sorry. My hormones. <laughs> She's pregnant now, if you couldn't tell as well. So we were excited. Yes. So it was in this time where she's pushing us to do this other direction. We really felt, you know, we just asked more people to join in with us. And we really had faith in God that he was going to do something else. We stick, stuck with the, the current treatment we were doing. And it was only two rounds after that is when we conceived. So it was awesome. Uh, and now we have our baby girl, uh, Marla, who is now 16 months. And you'll see her running around here all the time now. Um, and we are blessed to be expecting baby girl number two here in September, uh, whom we conceived naturally without any treatment at all. Yeah. Yeah, so through this journey overall, we've um, just learned to increase our faith, really, in the power of prayer um, and in the uplifting power of our community. Um, and it's easy to feel like you're alone because you don't reach out for help. If you don't tell anyone what's going on in your heart and your life, then nobody's going to know. So, yeah, we just um, really learned the value of that community and inviting people into your to your struggles and to your life. Um, and, yeah, we've learned that no matter what God has planned for our family, he's going with us, and he knows what he's doing for our good and for his glory. Thank you. something really cool that happens when we get to the end of ourselves. I remember when Ryan grabbed me uh, that first Sunday when they had been through the treatments, weren't getting anywhere, and just kind of were at the end of themselves and just kind of let me in and we started praying and Janie, we started praying and just, you know, tears coming down. Like it was just a beautiful time, but there's this really cool place where we get to the end of ourselves because then it's like, I don't know, like our hearts and our arms open up to maybe like um, what Jesus wants to do in us and with us and for us in those moments. And then what, two months later t- uh, to receive the news back and to continue to pray. And now uh, we were joking before the service that uh, it'd be nice to have Marlo up front with them for the testimony. But she's so cute that you wouldn't have heard a word they were sharing in the story. You'd just be gawking at her. Just a beautiful little girl. And now number two uh, shortly coming. Marriage, family, kids. What a blessing. Uh, and we're leaning into that in, uh, in this series. So in light of that, like, um, this, was not, this was not something that I had planned out in the beginning of the year. This kind of erupted because of baby dedications. I told you guys that last week. Um, but God's been kind of piecing some things together uh, for me regarding this and some things that I think he has for us to speak into our body here. Uh, I, I just... Um, finished up just personally on my own reading through the book of Joshua um yeah go Joshua very good and um 
I think I have like a half chapter left, actually. Um, and there's this point, it starts in Joshua chapter 13, that um, it's like, it's actually Joshua chapter 13 to 19. And it's chapter after chapter of reading what seems to be like a surveyor's document. You guys know what a surveyor is? Someone that goes out and measures land. And then, like, they'll document, like, you know, 0.5 degrees latitude this, and then 32 degrees longitude this, and then, like, they're just marking out territory. Um, It's it's actually what Joshua chapters 13 to 19 is. It's a surveyor's document. But the purpose behind it is that God is bringing his uh, people, Israel, into the promised land. And what's going on is that each of the 12 tribes are going to be given a certain and specific allotment in the promised land that is going to be theirs. And the chapters are long, they're tedious, and uh, apparently as you're reading them, not very immediately applicable. Right? And I just wanted to give you guys a sample, just four short verses here of the surveyor's document in the book of Joshua. You guys ready for this? Just promise me that you'll stay awake for this. But here we go. Joshua chapter 13, starting in verse 8. With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, inheritance, which Moses gave them, beyond the Jordan, eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. From Eror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley. And all the tableland of Mediba as far as Dibon, and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the boundary of the Amorites, and Gilead, in the region of the Geshurites, and the Machathites, and all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan to Selakah, and all the kingdom of Og in Bashan, who reigned in Asheroth and in Edrai. How's that? Now imagine that and then go for seven chapters. So as I was reading through Joshua, I'm in Joshua 13 and then I, I got a little bored just telling you the truth and I, I just like started flipping the Bible forward to see how long this was going to go on. Seven chapters, I realized. And at that point, I was tempted to hit the fast forward button. Anybody remember the fast forward button? Right? Just to zip through as quickly as I could, not even to read it, but just to go ahead and skip to the next section. But uh, I decided to stay. All of Scripture, all of God's Word is alive, useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting, all the things, right? So I decided to linger in and just read through those seven chapters as I normally would read through any part of the Bible that I am going through. And at some point in those seven chapters of reading the surveyor's document, it clicked for me. And here's what clicked. That what God was calling his people to was a very clear kind of stewardship and responsibility. And he was inviting his people into that. That each tribe was given specifically, and the surveyor's document is very detailed. Each of the 12 tribes, upon walking into the promised land, knew which part of the land was theirs to be responsible for and which was theirs 
to steward. And then from there, as each tribe knew what was theirs to steward, then you would break down the land further into clans or groups of families. And they would know which areas of their part of the promised land was theirs. And from there, it would further break down into individual specific families where they would be given a surveyor's document of very detailed language regarding which land was theirs to steward and to be responsible for. And the idea is this, the promised land has potential to be a very vibrant place, a land flowing with milk and honey. But the potential for the promised land to be a vibrant place will only be realized if and as each person and family fulfills their specific stewardship responsibility. Or to put it this way. Um, The best way to serve the whole of the nation of Israel is for each individual to be taking care of their specific part of Israel. The best way to take care of the whole is for you to take care of your part. Does that make sense? Surveyor's document. Let's break it down just so we're clear. Let's, let's, um, let's bring it into these four walls for a second. And let's just assume that, you, that all of us collectively were given stewardship responsibility for this room. Look around, all of it. We're in charge of all of it. There's two ways that we could go breaking down this responsibility. Option number one is we could just go with this. Hey, everyone, we are all responsible for all of the room. And then we just move on. But the problem with that is it's very vague and unclear what Sally's responsible for and what Brandon's responsible for and what the Bocas are responsible for. Like We don't know at that point who specifically is going to do what. So it's very vague and unclear. We're not quite sure how we're going to take care of this place. It's just very vague. But the other option in terms of how we collectively would take care of this room is that we would go the route of Joshua chapter 13 to 19, that we would break it down the surveyor way. And that we would get a surveyor in here and they would break out all their surveyor tools and they would take the square footage of this room and break it down according to the number of people in this room. And then at the end of that breakdown where the surveyor is meticulously detailed all the individual parts, each of us would be given a part that we would be responsible for. So that Brian would be responsible like from the stage front over to the wall three feet back and three feet up the wall. Is that very clear? That's surveyor clear. And Nancy would be given this half of the stage over to the wall, back three feet, up three feet on the walls. Nancy know what she's responsible for? You betcha, because the surveyor just described in detail what Nancy's for. And then on and on. All of us now, right at the end of the surveyor's surveying, we're all given a specific part of the room to responsibly steward over. And the beauty of that is that we know who's responsible for what. And over time, we can see who's doing their job and who's not. Right? The paint starts peeling over here and this part of the carpet's always messy. Well, it's, it's not unclear whose stewardship responsibility that is. So there's a level of accountability here. So the idea is, right, if 
each of us would steward well our part of the room, then the whole of the room will be awesome. If none of us steward our part of the room well, then the whole of the room will move towards chaos and dilapidation. I'll say it again. The best way to serve the whole is to take care of your part. We understand that from the surveyor's perspective. Joshua chapter 13 to 19. Think about Jesus for a second. Before Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he withdraws and he goes away. For 40 days and 40 nights, it's just him and the Father. Although the adversary comes for a visit, it's just Jesus and the Father. The adversary is kicked out, right? And while Jesus is in the wilderness with the Father, what he's doing is a lot of things, but specifically one thing for sure he's doing is he's getting clarity on what his mission is going to look like. And at that point, somewhere in those 40 days, the Father, surveyor, speaks. Just real quick, if you were to read Joshua chapter 13 to 19, there's some people in the church that would read that detail-oriented administrative language and say, that's not of God, that's of people, because God's not like that. Right? I just very intentionally said that Jesus met with his father, surveyor. Do you know that God, the father, is detail-oriented, that he is administrative, that the Father's got a plan, and his plans are good. Sometimes we think that when God shows up, all plans go out the window. That's not necessarily true, because sometimes when God shows up, the plan that we had actually then gets done better. Because God is a meticulous planner. It's part of who he is, and many of us bear that image out, and that is good. So Jesus is out in the wilderness with his father surveyor and his father surveyor speaks to Jesus and and the father starts drawing surveyor lines for Jesus. And do you want want to know what those lines sounded like? A little different than Joshua 13 to 19, but this is what the father speaks his surveyor language over Jesus. He says this, he says, Jesus, regarding your mission, Peter, James, John and Andrew. We're going to go over, we're going to go to Philip, we're going to wrap Philip in, and then you're going to come back a few steps, move over here, and you're going to grab Bartholomew. And on and on, the Father laid out, Jesus, your stewardship responsibility is going to be these 12 individuals. It's actually the same thing when Jesus heals. Jesus didn't heal everyone in Israel. He healed those whom the Father had put in his purview to heal. Not all. He healed those he was supposed to. Jesus didn't uh, provide deliverance for all who were demonically oppressed in Egypt. He did deliver those whom it was in his purview that the Father gave him to deliver. Jesus didn't feed every hungry person throughout his lifetime in Israel, but he did feed those whom the Father had put in front of him and said, Jesus, feed them. They're in your surveyor's purview now. Take care of them. Jesus did not teach every single person in the land of Israel. 
But he did teach those whom the father surveyor had put in front of him and instructed him to teach. Here's a curiosity question for us. I wonder if we could ask this question. Jesus, why did you come to the world? For what was the intent of your ministry? Did you come to minister to the twelve? Or did you come to rescue the world? Are you going to pour yourself out for the whole world? Or are you just going to minister to the twelve? And at that point, we've got ourselves in an either-or predicament. And we like to do that as people, don't we? We like to say it's got to be either this or this. But God is way more creative than that in his meticulous strategic plans. Jesus says, no, it's not the 12 or the world. You're looking at it wrong. They're not in competition with one another. But Jesus would say, it's actually, I'm ministering to the 12 because this is what the Father has put in front of me. And as I minister to the part here, the surveyor's language of the 12, as I minister to these 12, I am also then ministering to the world. There is no competition between them. They are in absolute unity in connection with one another because I trust that my father surveyor knows what he's doing he's given me the 12 and then we're going also to the world there's an alignment there the best way to serve the whole is to take care of your part Jesus took care of his part because he cared about the whole it's interesting uh, any fans of TED talks in the house anybody listen to TED talks I listened to a TED Talk, and I can't point you to it, because this was probably like 10, 15 years ago. And the, the talk, the, the idea behind the talk was this, that at some point in the new millennium, in the 2000s, um, a slew of books came out, and the, the thesis behind the books was essentially this, how to save the world. How to save the world. And the, and the idea behind the the TED Talk was this, that previous to this like movement in the early 2000s, if you were to go to the library and try to find a book on how to save the world or saving the world or save the world this, that, the other, there weren't any books with those titles. But at some point in the early 2000s, like saving the world became a big deal and everybody started writing books on them. But not just books, um, pastors started preaching sermons on them. I did a few myself. Um, there were more TED Talks on how to save the world. There were papers coming out on the need to save the world and strategically what's the best way to save the whole world. Before the 2000s, very few, very little talk of this kind of language. After the 2000s, there was a tsunami of saving the world coming and sweeping over our culture. Now, if that's vague and doesn't make sense, I'll give you a couple examples that I confronted and ran into myself. This is probably, I don't know, eight years ago. I was uh, with another gentleman who was on staff at our church, and a, and a guy who was tangentially connected to our body wanted to come and have a meeting with us. We said yes, he came in, and uh, what he wanted to do is to save the world. And the way that he wanted to save the world is he wanted to, I'm not making this up, so just go with me here. What he wanted to do was he wanted to audit the Federal Reserve. Right? Any Ron Paul fans in the house? Yes? I'm not opposed to auditing the Federal Reserve. But he, he sat down, and so we, we're just listening. And sometimes, like, when you have a meeting like that, you, you kind of want to get to the heart of the individual and see what's really going on and ask some questions. And we did that. And um, 
as we asked him strategic questions about, like, what, you know, so why, why, here's what he wanted. He wanted our church to lend credibility to and backing to and support to him to make a wide campaign in the Akron area to audit the Federal Reserve. He wanted us to join him in that and lend our support behind it. And as we went on to talk to him, um, like, you know, so why, why would we, why should we join you in this? And essentially, here's what came out. That every problem, not just in America, but in the world, traces its roots back to the Federal Reserve. According to him, right? World hunger, um, economic disparity, uh, maladies of physical varieties, war, rumors of war, all of the things that are wrong in the world, in his mind, trace their way back to the Federal Reserve, and we need to bring them accountability so that we can what? save the world that was his that was his perspective on things and he wanted us to join him in his mission to save the world another example was this i think this was around 2012 around election time before november hit um there was some division politically going on nothing like what we see today but for that that point in history it was something and a, a young man came up to me and said um brian again he wanted to meet we met and he wanted me to take my ministry that I was leading, and similar to the audit the Fed, like bring credibility and backing and support to his vision of bringing rescue to the whole world, actually it was just America, what he wanted us to join him in doing is a vote for Jesus campaign. And he, and he had all the reasons why if we would just join him in the vote for Jesus campaign, it would solve so many cultural issues and cultural problems. He wanted to save America he wanted us to join him by supporting him in his Vote for Jesus campaign. Now, um, I just wonder if this desire to save and to rescue the world came from this place. right? I just wonder if at that point in our nation's history, if so few of us were taking care of our parts that the whole got so messy that taking care of our parts didn't seem like an option anymore. And so all we could think to do is we just got to save the whole. Right? But we had forsaken our parts. And when everybody forsakes their parts, the whole gets messy, doesn't it? And then the whole becomes a big thing. Everybody just starts looking at the whole. We got to solve the whole, save the world, save the country, solve all the problems, audit the Fed, Jesus for president, whatever your thing is, right? We just want to solve the whole thing because the parts at that point seem insignificant but to that right this desire to save the whole we'll just call that a misguided solution but joshua chapter 13 to 19 gives us the right approach to solve the problems the best way to serve the whole is to take care of your part good on that here's a side note and you'll just have to trust me on this because you don't know these individuals the audit the fed save the world guy and the vote jesus for president save the world guy if you were to look at their individual lives and their individual relationships what you would see is deep brokenness they were not managing stewarding responsibly their parts very well at all there was deep brokenness in their family environments much of it very much connected to them they had forsaken their parts, but man, they were passionate about rescuing the whole. 
of the fa- father surveyor. Says, oh man, we're getting it backwards here, guys. We're getting it backwards. Let's personalize this for us. Um, if you are married and if you have kids, do you know what the father surveyor has already spoken over you? He has spoken over you your lines of stewardship responsibility very clearly. As clearly as he spoke to the tribes of Israel about what they're to responsibly steward in the promised land, as clearly as we mapped out what part of this room you're responsible for, if you are married now and have kids, the father surveyor has spoken your lines very clearly. And here's what I would just love for us to see. That there is no competition between you stewarding responsibly your marriage and your family and your desire to see the world blessed. Those two things are not in competition. It's not the 12 disciples or the world. It's not my wife and my kids or your husband and your kids or the world. Those two things, it's not an either or. But it's more like this. And we take our cues from Jesus. That the way that we serve the world, or let's just say this, the primary way that we most powerfully serve and bless the world will be through being responsible and stewarding those very clear core lines that the Father has drawn for us. I'm serving the world by seeking to love my wife. I am serving the world by seeking to raise and love my kids. That is the primary way, not the only way, but the primary way that I am called to serve the world. The best way to serve the whole is to take care of your part. I would just invite you to do this. Go home at some point this weekend. You have an extended weekend. You just have have some time off work. Just do a little internet search on, on statistics regarding the difference between the future outcomes of children who have two parents in the home and then children that only have one. Now we've got some single parents in here that are doing a heroic job want to honor you and want to lift you and appreciate you. You have the wisdom to bring your kids into the extended family environment. Yes, well done. Not disparaging single parents because life happens. It's not everyone's choice to be in a single um, parent family, right? Just want to be very clear on that, right? There's ways to get around this when you bring in other people. But read the statistics on the future Um, disparity between homes with mothers and fathers and homes with only one, or we'll say fatherless homes. The stats are astounding. Regarding a child's future income, regarding their likelihood to crime and criminal behavior, regarding their future achievement, drug activity, every single metric that you can measure, it is astounding. That when a mother and father say, this is my marital relationship, this is my family, I'm going to responsibly steward this, this thing because this, these are the lines that the father surveyor has drawn for me, right? Compare that to people who are not, right? Where one of the marital partners has just opted out for whatever reason and look at the children, the difference is amazing and it is tragic. And here's the idea. When families break, society breaks. It just takes a little time for the splintering to move out, right? When families break, when marriages break, it breaks the heart of kids. 
When you get a bunch of kids that are living out there with broken hearts, society becomes a broken place. Love this quote by Frederick Douglass. He says this. He says, it's easier to build strong children than to fix broken men. I actually read that on a bumper sticker. So if you've got a bumper sticker, keep rocking that thing out. Profound quote. It's easier to build strong children, to be responsible and steward your kids. It's not an easy task to do that. But Frederick Douglass gets it. It's easier to do that with your kids while you got them than it is to forsake that responsibility and save the world later by putting a broken man back together. That's a labor that none of us really has the full-on strength for. And you get a society full of broken men, you're in big trouble. How do we solve that? Let's go back. Let's just start with some kids and let's faithfully and like with wise stewardship, let's pour ourselves into them. If we take care of the part, then the whole will take care of itself. Right? But the truth is, in our culture and our society, we've got some marriage and family difficulty. It's difficult for us to stay responsible for the things that the Father Surveyor has put in front of us to be responsible for. And to that I say, maybe I have a question for us. Did Jesus have difficulty with his stewardship responsibility of the twelve? Were they a dream and a joy to always hang out with and spend time with? Did Jesus have any difficulty with the twelve? The answer is yes, he did. Just a little sampling from the Gospels, just for fun's sake. Peter, his chief disciple, actually rejects to his face Jesus' core mission in coming to the world. No, Jesus, you're not going to die. You're not going to lay your life down as a sacrifice. You don't do that. You ever had a spouse call into question your core mission on planet Earth? Well, Jesus, Jesus was right there. How about when James and John wanted to destroy a Samaritan village, call down fire from heaven, just puff them all up in a big ball of smoke? Ah, that, that, that's a difficult thing for Jesus and his responsibility to the twelve. How about the regularly occurring argument among the disciples regarding which of them is the greatest when they just are missing completely everything that Jesus was inviting them into. Is that frustrating? Will that cause some consternation in your stewardship responsibility? You betcha. How about the countless times when Jesus is teaching and he's breaking it down clear and they have no idea what he is talking about and they are misinterpreting and misunderstanding. I don't know about you, but that would be deeply frustrating to me. How about what we talked about last week, right? When Jesus just wants the little kids to come to him because he says, my kingdom is for such as these, while the disciples are shooing the little children away because they've got a different agenda. Did Jesus have difficulty with his stewardship responsibility? I think that he did. It was clear. Question for us. Why did Jesus not divorce his disciples and move on to some better ones? It's a valid question. Do you see what I'm doing here? Do you see where I'm going? Why did Jesus not divorce his disciples and go get himself some better ones? And the answer is because the father surveyor gave Jesus them. In his language of lines of responsibility was very clear, unmistakable. He heard it. 
They were his stewardship responsibility. Period. But Jesus, you deserve to be happy with your disciples. Jesus' response is, but what? But they're my responsibility. And you say, but Jesus, you, you deserve better than that. And Jesus says, what? The Father gave them to me. Jesus didn't love his disciples because they were awesome. He loved them into awesome. Jesus didn't serve his disciples because they were awesome. He served them into becoming awesome. Jesus didn't long suffer with them because they're awesome. He long suffered them into awesome. The best way to serve the whole is to take care of your part. And what Jesus is saying and what the Father surveying is, surveyor is saying in Joshua, Jesus says, follow me. Join me in taking care of your part. The Father has drawn some lines for you. Steward responsibly everything that is inside of those lines. Band, come on back up. We're going to sing a couple more songs. I just want to say this. When we talk about marriage and divorce and family, we do not do this to shame anyone in the room who has made mistakes regarding this in the past. The blood of Jesus, if you are in Jesus, covers all of our nasty. And he blankets us with forgiveness and kindness and grace. He covers us. But this message is for us in the present and moving forward. That now, from now on, we ought to join him in the way that he is inviting us to live. And the Apostle Paul uh, says it actually like this, similar language. Catch the idea. Paul says this, Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. But you you deserve to be happy. You deserve better than that. Paul, Paul says, whoa, 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 hold on. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus and the Father Surveyor who has drawn my lines. And in the lines that he has given me, Paul says, I will be faithful, I will steward, and I will be responsible. The invitation is for us to join.